Okay, well, hello, everyone. Hopefully, you can hear me all all right right now. Uh, I just finished watching everything for a third time through, and this is only 10 episodes, half hour each, barely, more like 25 minutes each. So I've seen this a lot of times, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this in the same way that we do other episodes. We're going to do a chronological run-through of this very interesting, interesting series, which uh, brings a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in this that I did not expect. And probably a lot of other people did not expect too. So let's just see how this goes. Uh, so Japan Sinks 2020. This is amazing. And well, let's get started. So this is a Masaki Yuasa production. And the studio is called Science Saru. And it was created, the studio was created just to do his style and to go by his sensibilities. However, he didn't have a lot to do with this particular production. Um, I think that it's possible the coronavirus had an impact on this production uh, as far as just overall quality and maybe they had to rush it. I don't know. Um, but we'll see. I, I think it might, that might explain some of the things that are kind of a little bit weird or a little bit off regarding this uh, series. It's definitely quirky. It's definitely offbeat. It's extremely interesting though. I felt at times like I was watching Game of Thrones because of the frequency of uh, all the bad things happening to good people. But I, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But let's just start in, I think. Um, for those of you that haven't seen it, it's okay. It's okay because I'm going to go through this plot of this thing. And we're, we'll just see how, how it goes. So if you haven't seen it, doesn't matter. But here's how we here's how we'll start. Um, starting with the music on this thing, the theme at the beginning, the opening theme is really good. I think it's really pretty, and I love the the way it looks. I love the the montage sort of that they showed of uh, our family and their happier times and all that. I think that works. But I do have a, and I don't have a problem with the music itself in the rest of the show of the rest of the series, but there is some odd music that comes on at times. Like it's oddly timed. The mood of the music sometimes does not match what's going on on the screen mood wise, like at all. And because this is such a, this has a lot of doom and violence and all that fun stuff in it. But then we get this peppy sort of music and I think it breaks the mood and I don't necessarily need, you know, Wagner, but at the same time, I would like something a little bit in between. I don't think that would really hurt it. Uh, this is uh, Dave's asking, is this one movie? Uh, it's, 10 episodes uh, 
and it's on Netflix and each episode is like 25 minutes or so. Um, so yeah, we'll start in here. Yeah. The music is a little bit odd in submersion of Japan 73 too, but this is uh, a little different even more so. I didn't expect it to discuss and go upon the subject of YouTubers, or at least popular YouTubers, extremely popular YouTubers, and so I can't really relate. But we will go go into that. We will go into the YouTuber aspect of this. Uh, I took a lot more notes than I thought I would with this. So we'll start with episode one. Um, hmm. So... At the beginning, we're in Tokyo, and, well, and we see a lot of stuff here at the beginning. There's a lot of stuff set up, and the, the takes on this are pretty quick because it's, you know, anime. Uh, one thing that struck me was that there was a kid in the park, and he, I believe it's a, maybe it's a little girl, and she points up to the sky and it's like look at all the birds and i was like okay okay you're going back to 1973 submersion of japan with the whole phenomenon of the birds leaving japan before this disaster starts happening um and so i, I figured that's what it was and so we were immediately i thought okay yeah we're warming up to an earthquake to start right now and it pretty much does And so our, the mom, uh, Mrs. Moto, and she, her name is um, Mari. I want to make sure I get the pronunciation of that right. Uh, she is in a, an airplane that's coming towards Tokyo Nader Airport that's about to land. So she's in the plane. And meanwhile, uh, her husband is at one of the Olympic stadiums. And he's working on putting the stadium together. And so there's a lot of Olympic stuff in this. And because of all that's going on now, that's kind of creepy. I mean, it's not creepy, but it's just sad and kind of bad in a way. Um, and then in this family, there are two children. The father's name is, uh, I've written it about 20,000 times, and I still can't remember, Koichiro. So... Is Koichiro and then Mari and then the two uh, children. And one is named um, this is really funny that I'm like I'm having trouble reading my own writing because it does not look so good. And because the characters' names aren't on this first page really. Uh, Ayumu. Ayumu is the daughter and then the uh, son's name is Go, G-O, Go. So um, it's a four-member four family, and Mrs. Moto is Filipino, and then Koichiro is Japanese, and so the two children are um, mixed-race Filipino-Japanese. And so that's something that's different, but we aren't even beginning to go with all the different stuff that's happening. This departs from Komatsu 
massively. Um, did the prepare? Uh, Dave is asking, did the prepping for the games follow the original 70s story? Nope. Uh, so this is what's going to be interesting is it's when we look at the magazine that's in the, the airplane that she's on, that's making in, that's going, coming in for a landing. And that is, it's dated September, 2020. So there's plenty of time in between now and September for, you know, this to actually happen this year, right? Because this would be the year to do that. And as much as I'm joking here, I could, I could really use some old fashioned disasters that we're going to see in this because I'm totally into that. As long as it's not about a virus, we're okay. Um, so the daughter Ayumu is at track practice. She's one of the star members of the track team. And uh, it's not too long after that, that we get our fourth shock of, uh, of the earthquake. Dave's asking even by today's standards, isn't that mixed marriage still pretty big step for Japanese? Yes. And so the, the idea with this is, is that the, um, the, the anime series is meant to reflect the racial changes that have occurred in uh, Japan between you know, now and the past 10 years or so. And so, yeah, it is a little bit of a, of a step, but at the same time, not really. Um, things have changed a lot there. So there's that. And so our foreshock occurs. It's a 4.0, 5.0, and it's a pretty long quake. And uh, Koichiro is at the Olympic venue, and uh, they're pretty surprised by it. And he starts deciding, well, let's start taking down the business, you know, everything for today and get home because generally when an earthquake of enough magnitude occurs, that's when you want to uh, want to go home, start making sure that everything's okay. It's when they start inspecting the train, you know, they stop the trains when they start inspecting the train tracks, you know, all that stuff is going on. Um, but they aren't very, very shook by this first one, not, you know, pun intended. Um, and even from the beginning of this, the music is working essentially against the mood of the rest of it. Like the animation has one mood and then the music has a different mood that's generally more upbeat. And I don't know why. Um, so there's that. And so the, the track team, they go into the locker room and uh, at that point is when the real earthquake happens and all like everybody's phone goes off because it's a warning system and it's the real big one. Everybody's thrown around uh, all of these underwater fissures start opening up in Tokyo Bay and spewing out all this steam and all that. And uh, that's when our first bloody incident occurs this actually is a a relatively violent uh, uh anime not like in the in the sense that there are battles and there are people getting sliced apart and everything but there are some pretty gruesome moments which is okay i'm not i don't have a problem with that actually um 
one of the members of the track team is crushed under a row of lockers that is thrown. And like, we're talking like a really big earthquake. This is something like a nine, it's, it's a 9.0 or above. It's huge. So that's the first thing. And this is where Ayumu trips and cuts her leg open on a piece of metal as she's trying to run out of there because there, there's this girl who got crushed and she's asking for help. And uh, Ayumu is like, I'm getting out of here. She gets her phone and she runs. And meanwhile, Koichiro is like hanging from the, the sort of suspenders that are keeping him up because he was working on a piece of the stadium that required uh, height work. So then he's able to get down. Meanwhile, Go is in the family home and he's alone there. And he, all, all this stuff is thrown around in the house. And so there's, there's all that going on too. So Koichiro comes on uh, in this kind of, uh, there are a lot of, uh, what is it? Audio flashbacks. That would be the way to put it. Um, and so he, the audio flashback of him comes back to Go. And Go is like uh, eight years old or so. Ayumu is about 14, I believe. And the parents don't seem to be any older than 40, I would think. Uh, they're not old, really. They're not young either, but they're just about in between. So uh, her Go's father, Ichiro comes, Koichiro comes on, and in this little audio flashback, it says, if there's an earthquake and you're on the first floor, just go outside. And this isn't something that Go actually did, and he's uh, hit by some of the stuff in the house when it's thrown around. Um and meanwhile, Ayumu realizes that their car is crushed in the parking garage, so she has to run home. And there's destruction all around her as she's, and she's running. And meanwhile, Mari's plane has been affected by the steam fissures, injecting debris into the engines. And so they're all bracing for impact. And so the, the plane is going in for a crash landing. And these don't seem like volcanoes, like individual volcanoes that are erupting in Tokyo Bay. It just seems like the ground is opening up in standard um, submersion of Japan catastrophe fashion. Um, and so there's all this steam, but it, I think it doesn't take all that much to go into aircraft engines to actually knock a plane out of the sky like this. So Koichiro's speeding home on his moped and a building like literally collapses like right in front of him almost kills him you know just misses him barely uh the plane goes into a crash landing it goes into one of the rivers and they're evacuating the plane and at that moment a tsunami starts coming up from the ocean and and comes up the river um mari uh is able to rescue a little boy from the plane as she's running um out of there and so she's able to actually save somebody's life. So this whole thing goes from zero to Armageddon in like a couple minutes. Like in the other anime, which is called Magnitude 8.0, the only thing people can do is run because transportation got knocked out. All the trains got knocked out. Uh, the roads got torn up. There's no way to, to go on the roads. And so they have to run. And Ayumu comes home and she sees the home she sees her house damaged 
beyond repair. And uh, we hear a flashback of her, uh, of her talking about her new house uh, when she was younger. And all these kind of voice flashbacks come back at a, at a certain point. And like she's stunned and saddened. And she turns and she sees some stairs with some rainbow colored lights going up. And it turns out that they were the rainbow colored lights that her father put on the trees outside their house. But he got them and put them on this hill that goes up to this Shinto shrine in a way for them to be able to see that so they know where to go. So the shrine has collapsed, but her father, Karichiro, is there. And she goes there, and then eventually her brother shows up, and he has injuries, but he's able to get him fixed. And uh, his father gets, and the reason is his father gets a pair of uh, staples and actually staples his his eyelids up here because they were uh, cut when he was hit. Tokyo Tower is shown wrecked. There are fires everywhere erupting. Skyscrapers are leaning because of the intensity of the earthquake. Mari shows up and the family is reunited. So all four of them are on this hill. And she had her phone when she escaped, but she didn't attend to the girl that was yelling for help. And so Ayumu feels really sad for it. And Ayumu is our main character, even though I kind of wish somebody else was. Um, we're introduced to another character whose name is Nanami because she recognizes Ayumu. And we're also briefly introduced to another character named Haruo Koga, who is uh, on his headphones. He kind of seems like a Hikikomori type. So at this point, uh, there's these dead bodies start falling out of the sky, literally. Uh, and it's because this helicopter was crashing and their bodies just falling out of it as it was crashing. And so they're just bodies falling into the trees uh, on this hill and startling the hell out of everyone. And it's really quite gruesome. And there's blood coming out of one of the bodies that's dripping onto her. Um, So in that fashion, the first episode's pretty much over. And I like the unprecedented twist in this story. The, The story doesn't follow Komatsu to the letter. And that's what I thought when I first saw this. I was like, well, it's not following Komatsu to the letter, but... We'll see where it goes. And I figured it would go back towards the Komatsu. But in fact, no, it doesn't. Little did I know how much you would deviate from the, uh, from the Komatsu. I appreciate the slow burn that was the first part of the original 1973 submersion of Japan. But this is an anime. So I figured they were going to have the earthquake right there when it happened at the beginning, which is fine. I don't expect them to do anything differently. So episode two, at the beginning, a survivor tells the group on the hill that a firestorm got the evacuation camp. And that's actually alluding to what happened in 1923 with the Kanto earthquake. They all gathered in one spot and then the firestorm just literally surrounded them and then got them and uh, either burned them or uh, suffocated them by burning all the oxygen. Um, So that is a reference to that. And if you want to hear more about the Kanto earthquake, you can see that with uh, the episode that's on the original submersion of Japan from 1973. And you can look at that. So in the last episode, uh, so in this next episode, there's a family on the hill and a man on the hill is wearing a coat and he has his phone with his headset on. That's Haro. And another person, uh, said how 
this guy used to be popular and he used to be a fan of him talking about Haruo, but Haruo can't hear them. And that's why I think it's more of like a Hikikomori thing because uh, Haruo was on the track team before this, but he's not anymore. And he turned inward and he got a trench coat and, you know, kind of withdrew from society. And that's where I made, made the Hikikomori connection. So these huge explosions happen in the distance further into Tokyo. And uh, it turns out that all of these factories have started exploding out in Kawasaki. Um, then also the water reaches the bottom of the hill that they're on. And they're like, wait a minute, this wasn't a, this was just a tsunami. Shouldn't the water have gone back already? And they realize that that's one of the, one of the first indications that they realize that Japan is starting to sink. So they go on their phones since the signal got restored somehow. It's funny how this, how this anime like goes into extreme unreality, but at the same time it comes back to reality. And, and so it's kind of weird how this works, but um, they look on their phones for news and there aren't any, there isn't any news from Japanese sources and it's all, they're not releasing anything on the Japanese sources. And so they have to go on foreign news to look at what happened. They realize that the grandparents' house is by the sea, so they're probably in trouble. They try calling grandparents' number, and it's not in service. And they get a text from grandma, but it's an old text. So there are some quick phone headlines of news that we get to see saying the earthquakes that were across the country, that U.S. Army planes are being flown into Japan from Okinawa. And a commentator says that their colleagues from the U.S., we're told to return home. So in other words, foreigners are already starting to evacuate back to their home countries. Um, then uh, some, some more interesting things happen. We see one of those giant images of uh, like satellite images of night lights from the sky. Uh, and we see one of the whole of Japan and the lights in all of the Kanto region are knocked out. Everything around Tokyo there, you don't see any lights. And so, as I as what I predict what I predicted was right, they see a news story about how Okinawa sank, which is interesting. Uh, the video is on YouTube and it's on the YouTube channel of a very popular YouTube uh, YouTuber, and we don't know who it is yet because we haven't been introduced to this character. But Ayumu isn't having any of it. She says that it's so unbelievable that such a thing would happen that Okinawa would just sink in a massive earthquake. And so it must be a fake video and the YouTuber is just playing a trick. However, go the, the, the boy, he says he believes it. And then the report is confirmed by foreign news media as authentic. So the whole of Japan has started tilting towards the East and sinking into the ocean. Reports say that Japan is sinking at Ibaraki prefecture, which is Northeast of Tokyo. So that makes sense. Koichiro, the father, says that this isn't like that disaster novel, and he can't figure out talking about the submersion of Japan because that's what's happening. He says how Japan would be lifted by tectonic plates, but it wouldn't go into the ocean. So then they launch into this diatribe about fake news. Uh, people on the Hill are saying they don't trust the media, they don't trust the internet, they say fake news is all over and that it could be used for political purposes. And that the biggest one that caught my eye is that they say that the fake news is being spread in order to harm the nation of Japan. And while these things are happening, and while we've achieved full 2020 status now 
with news awareness and fake news and all that, the group on the hill decides to move before the seawater starts surrounding the hill even more. So, and, and already so this hill is already getting turned into its own island. Ayumu comes up to Haruo and she says, you know, do you want to come with us? Let's look for your mom. And Haruo uh, says, well, my mom's dead. There's no way we can do anything. And so Haruo decides to tag along with the Muoto family. So they leave the hill and they start walking through the ocean water. So the ocean water is like already this far up, even though this whole thing barely just started. And they walk and they, they realize that they hear that the Philippines and Indonesia were hit hard by the earthquakes, tsunami, and other things. Uh, the 1973 film didn't really do much regarding what damage occurred to other countries, but this does in passing at least. Um, I think what's interesting with this is that eventually they do start talking about some of the stuff from the original submersion of Japan, at least alluding to it a little bit. So of this group on the hill, there's a divide between who wants to go east and who wants to go west. Uh, the Moto family decides to go west, uh, and it's because they figure that the east, with the lights going out in the east, they figure they should go west. And at one point, uh, you get a huge reference because someone says, remember that submarine pilot, Onodera, who said that Japan was going to sink into the sea and that he was backed by the crazy scientist Tato Koro. So there we go. That's, the, that's one of the allusions to the original story. But there really aren't very many of these. Uh, so they decide to go west. And so they're separated from nearly everybody else. Uh, the only other person that's with them is someone named a woman whose name I wrote down somewhere, but I can't read it. I apologize. Um, we'll find it anyway. So this is what's happening then. I'm going to bring you to a couple more of the highlights here. There we go. They start walking down an elevated highway to try to get out of the city further. And they go in and they encounter eventually a waterfall with drinkable water once they walk off the path. And, well, the wild boar attack was interesting. And I didn't expect that. They're in like this little, they're off this little road in a town somewhere. And this wild boar attacks them and it charges them. And I was intrigued by this scene the music totally killed the mood, but it charges Ayumu and Koichiro. And, and Koichiro, the father, jumps on top of it and he holds on to it. The boar runs over an embankment. Koichiro kills it, skins it, and prepares it and cooks it for them. And that's very interesting. Um, so the next thing that happens is pretty effed up. Uh, so it's the next day, and I'll tell this story this way because there's actually telling this is actually better than even just seeing it happen on the screen. There's a fence that they're walking up to and uh, so next to the fence, Koichiro sees a sign 
and it says, danger, no trespassing, digging for yams is prohibited. And Koichiro says, that means there's lots of yams there. So, and Ayumu says, well, that'd be great because they're hungry. He jumps the fence with Go, the son, and uh, Koichiro starts digging for yams with a shovel. There's a collapsed house. Mari leaves a 1,000 note, yen note under a rock, presumably for the family, for the yams, for the trouble, right? So there's this shot at uh, 2138, and the, the pseudo camera is in a hole, you know, and he's digging, and the hole's big enough for him to jump into and actually stand upright in it. He yells to go to take a flashlight and shine it down in that hole for him. He has a white cloth. Kuichir has a white cloth around his neck, hanging around his neck like a scarf, to, probably to wipe the sweat off of him. So he's holding the shovel with his left in his left hand here at the handle, and we see visibly his wedding ring, uh, his silver wedding ring. And Nanami, that's the uh, the girl that that's with them that decided to follow along with them. She asks Ayumu, "Do you want to look around and find something else?" Uh, of use while he's doing that. And Ayumu says, sure. So Mari is washing some plates in what looks like some uh, running water nearby. And she calls for Koichiro. He pauses digging and says he'll be done soon. He tells, uh, and he helps go back over the fence. So the son is now over with uh, his mom. Ayumu is walking down the fence and then she sees another sign on the fence and it reads March 16th, 1965. Another sign reads, no trespassing, danger. And then she comes to a sign that's covered with some leaves. So she pushes the leaves by to read it. And it says, explosives, deadly accident, 1965. No trespassing, danger. And she gasps. And then the last sign reads, unexploded munitions could be buried here. So we get a jump, jump cut back to Koichiro digging and the shovel hits the ground when he's digging and it makes the sound of metal hitting metal. So then we get an extreme close up of his face and he says, you're kidding. And the bomb explodes and we get a high number of succeeding points of view of the explosion. I feel like Hitchcock describing something right now. First, you see a medium shot of the other side of the fence of the explosion. You see Mari dropping the plates in slow-mo for a few seconds, no less, uh, zoning out, zooming out to show go the sun. And then we see a close-up of Ayumu's hand reaching out in the air for him. And there's a shot of Haruo sitting aside a collapsed building. And then a shot of the white cloth that Kurichiro had around his neck flying into the air. And then another shot of debris and the shovel flying high into the air. And then we get another shot back to the mom, Mari, staring towards us with the debris falling. And then a shot of... Koichiro's severed hand that had been uh, completely taken off of his arm and the, the hand has the silver wedding ring on it 
and then it just falls right in front of her with the blood still coming out of the hand. This is very Hitchcockian, isn't it? But I, I don't know what Hitchcock would think of this. So then there's another shot of falling debris reflecting in the water and then a shot of the shovel landing and clanging like a few feet away from Haro. And then the white cloth falling from the sky with the debris. And then we get, um, you know, it's, it's amazing, really amazing. And I, I re-watching this, I was like, are you freaking serious? I, I couldn't believe it. It was very amazing. And uh, it's, it's not something you expect. It, you just see it coming right out of, right out of nowhere, really. And, but the, the lead up to it and, and the aftermath of it is actually, it, it's, it looks really good. It's animated well, I think. And the, the shock value is pretty extreme. And that's the end of the second episode. Right, right. Um, so we pick up with the family, one less of them after this shocking death. We still have Haruo and Nanami with them. Nanami is probably uh, in her teens as well, it seems. Haruo, he seems like maybe uh, 17. I don't know. It's hard for me to be able to estimate these uh, anime character ages, but I'm just trying to eyeball them. So the first thing that happens then is Ayumu, our main character, has a meltdown. She gets into a big argument with her mother and everyone's exhausted, but they're still walking. Everyone's sweating. Uh, we get a shot, a point of view shot from Haruo, and he's looking through his glasses and there are big cracks in the glasses and one of the lenses uh, in one of the lenses. And they're walking up uh, to it at this point. And it seems like a difficult walk that they're making now. Uh, they're following along a road, but it's uh, very exasperating. And Ayumu sits down in the, in the road and she, and Mari, her mother is like, we'll leave you behind. And she's like, so you're not sad mom. And Mari replies, what? And Ayumu says, dad is dead. And Mari says that sitting down won't bring him back. She's trying to make the point that they have to keep going in order to save themselves. Ayumu tells Mari, you, do, you want me to forget him, don't you? And Mari insists, that's not it. And so this traumatic loss, you know, you still have to keep running from this disaster at the same time. And, and this horrible thing happened and you have literally no time in order to process this. And I think that's the point. But it's interesting. And Go says that she starts throwing her shoes and Go says those shoes were a present from dad. And so uh, the fight escalates more between Mari and Ayumu. And Ayumu says you're a failure and all of this. And it's very difficult. And Haruo is the only comic relief that we have. And during this argument, he turns up the volume on, uh, on his headphones so that he can hear the music better. But the, it's very difficult. And she, Ayuma also blames herself because she was the one that said, sure, I'll have some yams. So like she's blaming herself for yet another uh, death already here. Um, so this really sucks for all of them. And to a degree, Ayumu is being unreasonable. And it's just because of the, you know, but she contributed to a death. It doesn't mean that she necessarily caused it, but she may have contributed to the circumstances which caused it later. Uh, and, you know, who knows? But 
is very difficult. And the, the, the rest of this episode is pretty difficult, but uh, her father, uh, oh, sorry, later they get picked up by a truck. Most of the family, in the, it goes in the back and they fall asleep. And meanwhile, Nanami is the one who is up in the passenger seat of this truck. And I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen now. But we'll see what happens. Nanami is in the truck and the truck driver is this youngish man. And he says how he, uh, he's, he noticed the explosion from the munitions and started talking about that. And Nanami is simply like, I know. You're not going into it. The fact that she saw it happen. He's drinking whiskey and driving at the same time. She tells him you shouldn't be drinking so much. And he says, well, there aren't any cops anymore. What's the, what's the matter with it? And he says, you can get out if you have a problem with it. And he says, now they're all, and he says how they're all riding with him. So he's over the weight capacity. And so that's already violating a law. So forget all these silly laws. And then the camera, so to speak, camera shows an anomaly from the right side and from his vantage point and the camera sort of pans down towards her waist as he says let's do all the things that we couldn't do before so he rolls the window down and he throws the bottle out the window after he finishes drinking out of it and i think we all know what's going to happen next the 1973 film, it never really got into this part of humanity, you know, like, the, you know, humanity is falling apart. And so uh, the, the anarchy begins and people give in to this mentality that everything's falling apart and sinking into the ocean and society is collapsing. And so now people are free to to without laws, they're they're unrestrained. Um, so we've pretty well figured what's going to happen. So she goes to the, they get to a gas station. She goes to the bathroom and long story short, uh, she's bending over the sink and washing her hands and we're given a close up of her ass. And he laughs and says, you've got a nice ass there. And she says, you shouldn't be smoking here. He takes a big drag off the cigarette. And while he's next to a sign that says smoking is prohibited, he puts the cigarette out and says, I've taken you this far. So let me have some fun. And he takes off his belt and he laughs. And so here comes the action scene. And she says, go F yourself because this is TVMA. And he scoffs and says, it looks like I have no choice. Meaning it looks like she has no choice. And he wraps each end of the belt around his wrists, you know, and sort of tightens it like that, you know like he's going to literally strangle her. And he says, well, that will make it worth, you know, the, if you, he said, or actually she says, well, I know how to defend myself. And he says, well, that's, that'll make it worth you. So he goes towards her and she kicks him right in the face, stunning him. And he says, damn, that was a hell of a kick. Then he pulls out a stun gun and says, you're losing out if you don't have fun. So this guy's literally a sadistic sociopath. Clearly he, uh, and then he says, I'm, and he, then he says, Japan's through anyway. So it's you know, literally making an excuse. So taking a break from the 
action here to comment. There's a connection to the national psyche, just as we've seen a couple of times in, in episodes of this show, where it's an everyone for themselves mentality when faced with this new reality. And people who hated the rules use it to take advantage of the situation. And the implication here is that when the, the idea is that when the nation dies, when society breaks down, it affects people. And the perception of nationality is what's important. And so after this uh, fight, uh, Mari comes and helps fight this guy off. And um, they're able to escape. And they and what Nanami does is she steals the man's glasses, gives them to Haruo, so he has a good pair of glasses with, that's not cracked anymore. And so that's the one of the one of the bigger things that happens early on in this story is that uh, all of this happens. So then, the Mount Fuji scene—that uh, is something that really threw me off because it's so shocking and it was so fast. So. They're walking towards Mount Fuji. And one thing that happens is eventually Nanami and Ayumu say that they have to go to the bathroom. So they walk off the path some. And Nanami walks further down. And meanwhile, Ayumu stays further up. And Ayumu sees dead birds on the ground. And then we hear Nanami collapse and she's instantly dead. Instantly. And at that point, we have our YouTuber appear. His name is Kite. He appears on, an, on a powered parachute and he swoops in. And I guess there's a thing for white-haired characters in the studio's animations. So he has a megaphone and he yells to Ayumu, don't go any further down. There's poison gas coming out of the ground and it's settling in low places. And I thought, wow, that was really sudden. And that was pretty amazing. So he lands and he tells them that she died instantly and there's no hope. And he says, there's a thin line that separates life and death. And Ayumu, surprise, blames herself because she was the one who had the idea to go off the path and go to the bathroom in the first place. So now there are two deaths that Ayumu feels guilty about to one degree or another. Well, actually three. It's this one, her father, and possibly the girl who was being crushed at the beginning of this. So there's still a dynamic that she could have contributed to this. So Kite then explains that Japan is finished if Mount Fuji erupts and it could happen again or it could happen in a minute or it could happen tomorrow and it may or it may never happen. And Go says that Onodera, the submarine guy from the original story, said that before Japan sinks, Mount Fuji would erupt. And that's our second mention of Onodera. So it's amazing. And just when Kite is about to leave, they he asks them, well, I can take one of you but and take them to someplace safe, but I don't have enough gas and I can't take them back. And uh, the mother, Mari, says, take my son, because he's probably the youngest one. That's probably the way that she figured it. And, and it turns out that Kite is actually the famous YouTuber who actually had the video of Okinawa going, you know, com being completely destroyed and being submerged. 
So Ayumu goes off for a change, right? And tells him the video's fake and he's scum. And Kite gets a candy bar and starts to hand it to Go. And Ayumu says, you probably stole it from the abandoned houses. And she insists that Go not take this candy bar. And Kite says, Go, if he wants it, he wants it. And Mari asks Kite if he could take Go to someplace safe. And she actually says, yes. But Ayumu is not impressed. And she says, nobody asked you to take him. You, You know, just go on your way. And instead, he decides to decommission his powered parachute and he decides to start guiding them. And she's like, what made you change your mind? You're about to fly away. What are you doing? And so they all decide to follow him. And we get a final shot of Nanami just lying there unceremoniously on the ground, completely dead, instantly dead. Amazing. Um, th- this is something that is sh- quite shocking. But at the same time, uh, it shows that nobody's safe, at least supposedly. So I'll take a stab at, at, the, at the meaning of, of this because uh, Go says in, a, in one of those voice flashbacks, he says that he wants to live in Estonia. And he says Estonia is a really modern place and Kite uses it as his base which is true, and that's apparently this guy's Estonian. Uh, but we'll get into that further. So Go states that the world is getting smaller, and if you have a VR headset, you can see anything, and he doesn't want to live in Japan anymore because there are so many earthquakes. And it seems that Go is definitely the most globalized member of the family. To him, Japan isn't as important as he would rather be someplace safer, preferably. When we're all connected, where we are matters less, right? So this means that the Japanese can find somewhere else to live and survive it. So the final scene is pretty crazy. They go into this uh, supermarket and the lights are on on the inside. And this old man literally starts shooting arrows at them because they're trespassing. And it's pretty crazy how that happens. And the... Uh, the cliffhanger of the episode is that one of the arrows hits go like right here. But unfortunately he, fortunately he has this like backpack thing that's over him. So it just goes into that. And I sort of wanted to be like, Oh, maybe he was wearing Bilbo's mithril shirt or something like that. But long story short, we start at episode four already and Go isn't dead. Instead, it went into the screen of his Nintendo Switch that was in his bag. Uh, the man appears, and the, man's, the old man's name is Kunio. And he says he didn't mean to actually hit uh, Go because he's actually that good of a shot that he can just shoot arrows at people and scare them the hell away without hitting them. So... Kunio knows apparently how to fix a Nintendo Switch screen. Yeah, I know that's completely odd. But anyway, we're going with it. So as he's repairing it, um, Go goes up to him and he crosses his fingers like this. And 
Kunio's like, don't engacho me. And apparently in Japanese culture, crossing your fingers is saying engacho, which means to snub someone nastily. And Go says it's actually mean, it actually means good luck in other places. And the old man says he can't stand idiots who are in luck, who are in love with other places and obsessed with foreign things and who know nothing of Japan. So it's kind of like reverse weebs. The other thing is, is that I, I like this scene. Uh, because the other thing I liked in this scene was is where Go says he wants to compete in respects of the Olympics. And he actually wants to be a video gamer on because video gaming is starting to become uh, an actual sport. And so I, I can only imagine the competitiveness of what the sport would be like in order to get on the Japanese team. I have no idea. That would be pretty crazy. Um, Obviously, the classification of esports as a sport has happened recently. And so that's a little nod to gamers and the gaming community. So the next interesting thing that occurs. I wrote a lot of notes. The next morning, uh, Kite wakes everyone up. And he says, the, it was five degrees, now it's seven degrees. And they're like, it's not that cold outside. And he says, no, I'm referring to the tilt of the land. And he demonstrates that he gets a golf ball and puts it on the floor. And the golf ball literally just rolls. And it shows that the land itself is no longer level. Go tells Cuneo to come with him. And right then, another earthquake starts happening. Cuneo, the old man, tells them to all get into his truck and they all escape. And this is where things get really weird in this series. Because Cuneo says, let's go to Shan City. Or I believe Shan City. Which is the settlement or sort of a separate camp place that is like gated off. Uh, we see a sign that says entering Nagano Prefecture. So they're going to be, you know, it shows that they've gone you know, a little bit further west. This is where even more interesting things start to happen. Uh, they look on their phones, or the, uh, I believe it's a Kite that's looking at his phone, and the young prime minister of Japan is talking about Plan D, which is the evacuation phase of Japan. Now, the government starts this system where they're using national ID numbers as the basis for the lottery system to determine the order of people to be able to board ships in order to escape. Uh, Ayumu says that the prime minister looks spineless and they also say how young that he is. So on their way to, to Shan city, they pick up this hitchhiker who is an Englishman. He says he's an Englishman who speaks fluent Japanese and he does all these magic tricks. And this character, I'm kind of PO'd by this character. It's really a weird character. And it, a lot of people who have, have uh, talked about this, they, they really can't stand this character. But his name's Daniel. And uh, so then they, they pick him up, and he wants to go to Shan City, too. He was on the way there. So it's very interesting. I'm like, okay, what is this place? I look up Shan City on the map, and there's no such place like this at all. And I'm like, okay, so it's made up. All right. And it's a very nice place. It's unaffected by the earthquakes for some reason. And I kept expecting this place, this compound to be like an evil cult 
but they ended up not being an evil cult, even though I totally expected that they would. But when they accept everyone into the camp, there's new clothes and they get washed up and then they're told to go to dinner. And then we see them sitting down to eat in this communal eating dining room area. And it's at 1730 in episode four, we see weed growing like all around this place, like literal marijuana weed growing all over the place. And I was like, what? What's going on? And then uh, one of the characters actually tells them, oh, yeah, and there's also weed in the food. And I was like, what's going on? And so, the, so these, this place has kind of like a Buddhist vibe to it, even though it's more like a new sort of non-religion. It's, it's kind of like a cult, essentially. Uh, but this is very, very odd. Um, so this compound is like self-sufficient. Uh, they sleep in these yurts, these Mongolian yurts, so that they don't, those aren't affected by the earthquake. Uh, there's solar power. There's all of this uh, water, you know, fresh water that they can have access to, like all the comforts of home right there. And uh, they also go into a certain area where they are, it's like a workshop area where they're doing kintsugi. And that is the art of putting uh, broken dishes and other items back together. And it becomes like this art. And that's kind of what the, uh, it's kind of what the compound art is. Uh, and so it's very interesting. And then I, and then Daniel gives them sort of context about what that is. And it, and it goes along with the general anti-waste attitude in Japan. And I thought, okay, this is very interesting by now. I'm not sure where they're going with this. So the, so Kunio, the old man is in the truck and he's having morphine withdrawal and kite comes in and gives him some blister packs with some morphine pills in there. And uh, Kunio is coughing and it's probably lung cancer that he has from smoking. It's very interesting. He says that's not the reason that he came, though. The morphine isn't the reason why the old man came to the, to the compound. And I thought, okay, what's the real reason? And at the very end of the episode, it's about, uh, we, we see the oracle, this woman. And the, a man comes up to her and says, it's time to meet with the dead. And then the episode ends. And I thought, well, that's really odd. So episodes five and six is where things really kind of go off the, off the rails. And a lot of people complained about episodes five and six uh, because they're like, what is even happening? Are they going to stay at this camp forever? What is even going on? This is so strange. And the, it really threw people off because they're expecting the submersion of Japan. They're not expecting... Uh, any of this other weirdness. And yeah, Zach, you're saying uh, I was not expecting a 420 Jonestown. Yeah. Yeah. This was really weird. <laughs> so at the beginning of episode five, there is this ceremony and we learn that there's this Oracle and her name is mother. She was referred to as mother. And that's the reason why people come here is her abilities. So I didn't expect us to go into all this. 
But I like how Cuneo is the first person we see when this episode begins because there's a reason for that. It doesn't give you a tell as to what's going to happen, but it may get you to start thinking, why is this old man here at the compound after all? Why is he even in this anime series? Why did they pick him up at the supermarket? What's going on? So then we get told what Mother's all about. She can talk to the dead. She's John Edward, right? She's a medium. So they go inside this temple, and on top of this temple is this giant statue that's been put together by all these other pieces, it looks like, because there's these, there are these lines that it looks like they've been you know, gluing you know, pieces of this thing together. But this is a huge statue, giant. Um, so they go inside the temple, and the old man, Kunio, is very, very eager to go into this place and find out what's going on. So then we find out that there's a boy, a young boy, 10 years old, and his name is Lord Daichi, uh, and he's the symbol of Shan City. And the way this is different than John Edward is that the boy is the connection between the mother and the afterlife. So that's what's going on. And without, it's presumed that without him, she has no powers, really. But as they're, And as they're walking further up to the top of this temple, Ayumu smells weed, and she's like, what is that? And uh, I believe it's kite that tells her it's marijuana so the way that they're that they're talking to the dead the way this works is you give mother an object that was connected to the dead person that you want her to communicate with beyond the dead right so she holds it and then a few seconds later she's like (gasps) and she makes a connection and then she'll tell you what that dead person is saying and sometimes it's in a tone of voice that that person even talked so two people that we don't know go up to her and, and this is done. And the second one, she gives, uh, he gives this, this object to her and she's channeling a person who was killed in the, in the disaster. And she channels his father and she tells him, son, I wish you would have died too. You left me and all this. And this guy is completely floored. Literally. He's, sh- he's so shook that he's, thrown backwards onto the floor from shock. And so this is powerful stuff. And a disaster-related note kind of breaks off that scene when we see them going to a lake, and a lake has been completely emptied of water. And it's supposedly Lake Biwa, which is uh, actually west of Nagoya. It's in kind of central to southern Honshu. So that's where they are supposedly now. And the lake is empty because the ground cracked open under it. And so that reminded me of the initial scene from Godzilla versus Megalon, right? Um, so Go, this, the boy, af- the son, after seeing the impressive display of John Edwardness, he wants to connect with his father, Kuichiro. So uh, mother and the boy and her guard, which turns out to be her husband slash man, lover, whatever, uh, the three of them are walking and... Uh, meanwhile, you know, further away, our family and Kite, Haruo, etc., are all uh, walking near them. So Kite is really skeptical about this mother's ability. So he grabs Haruo's glasses, which were the glasses that Nanami put on him after the truck driver got beaten up. So Kite says, "You're a fake," and he gives her the he gives mother the glasses for a brief moment. Her guard, her husband, whatever, tells Kite she only can meet three people a day. So the three of them start walking away from them again. And mother turns around and says, Nanami wanted to tell Ayumu 
Don't blame yourself. It was me who said to take a break. Don't you worry about it. So all of them are like, oh my God, it actually is true. So interestingly, Cuneo, the old man is with them at this time and he doesn't say anything. And then kind of piqued my interest. So at lunch the next day, they learn that there's a school at the compound and they send go to school. And this scene wasn't all revealing, but the next scene sure was. We're shown uh, this longer distance shot of this gigantic cannabis field. And Haruo and Mari, the mother, are working in this cannabis field. And they're working even though they don't have to. Uh, they were told at the beginning of coming to the compound they didn't have to work. And Haruo says, it's good to work. I haven't, had, I haven't heard anybody say that phrase or that sentence in a very long time. Uh, maybe I'm just watching too much American television or something, but I haven't heard anybody say it's good to work in like a really long time. But anyway, it's a funny sentence. Anyway, Ayumu is working in the infirmary and she's helping this man who ends up being Onodera. And he has this neck injury, has this neck brace around him the whole time. He can't speak. And the only thing he can do is blink his eyes and tap his fingernails on the bed frame in order to alert her to something. And I'm like, what? Why did you do this with this character? This makes so little sense. I don't even know what's going on. It's weird. Um, yeah, I'm so, yeah, they worked YouTube in. I'm surprised they didn't work TikTok in as well. Um, lots of psychological things are going on here because he starts tapping and then this small earthquake happens. So apparently he has predicted a, a small earthquake. And it's like, okay, so now Onodera has like psychic powers that he can detect earthquakes. It's very, very weird. Um, Zach is saying, blow the dust off that ancient sentiment. Yeah. Um, so then the, the chef at the compound is named Mr. Otani. He's having this conversation with Go about sumo wrestling. Mr. Otani is this big guy, and he says how he likes sumo wrestling. Go doesn't. And he asks Go, if I was a sumo wrestler, do you think I'd win? And Go says, you'd have to be more than just fat to be a sumo wrestler. And the guy's like, well, okay. And I have seen how sumo appears to be getting less popular in Japan. And it makes me wonder if that's why Go doesn't like it, being a younger boy. But the story is also connecting common misconception in other countries that sumo is just two fat guys wrestling when it's actually not. And yeah, Estonia, I have no idea how that works. I don't know why they selected it. Maybe Estonia is like one of those, maybe to, you know, it's, it's like one of those Japanese role-playing games. Estonia it sort of sounds like one of those fake countries that you'd make up that there's this king that needs help and you need to rescue his daughter or whatever the hell. I don't know how they came upon Estonia either. There's so many decisions that were made in this anime that I really, I really don't know how they arrived at them. Uh, they're very interesting. The next scene, Ayumu and her mom, Mari get into another conflict shock about Koichiro, the father, because Ayumu says, she does want to make a connection with him. She, she's interested in going to mother to try to make this psychic connection to beyond the, from beyond the grave with her father. And Ayumu asks Mari, do you want to talk to him? And, and Mari's the mother is like, no, I don't. There's no point in doing that. And Ayumu's like, well, 
that that's that's awful you know you're you're you want to forget about dad and mari says probably the greatest thing in the entire series um mari says ayumu grow up and that's like the greatest thing ever i like we, we need a stadium full of people cheering at that point in this story really because ayumu has been a typical teenage girl up to this point i mean she's uh i believe 14 years old i'll give her a little bit of you know leeway with this but she really has been kind of a pain in the neck throughout this thing um yeah dave you're saying a little late now for wanting to not live in japan for this kid yeah and also um zach you're saying it's right across the border from saradia yeah and then um yeah, th this is amazing how this uh, how this whole thing works. So after she's told to grow up, uh, the, the main part of this episode occurs, which is the the weekend party. And it's interesting because Go says that he himself was invited, particularly himself. So they went up to him and actually invited him to come to this party. And I was like, OK, what's this party going to be like? Do we even want to? I, I'm really interested to know. So we go to the weekend party. There's a DJ. There's loud music, friendly atmosphere, lots of drugs. There's weed, there's cocaine. There's all kinds of interesting stuff going on. And I'm like, you, you seriously invited like the nine-year-old kid to this? Like, <laughs> that's interesting. So uh, this is after all a TVMA rated series. I'm not really surprised. I mean, the, you know, drug content, I really don't care. Um, I mean, it's TVMA. I would expect it, but it's, it's very interesting. I'm like, we're, I just think it's interesting because we are so far away from the original submersion of Japan story that I really just can't even. Um, so there's lots of booze. There's lots of, uh, there's a gaming tournament on this giant projector screen. And I got to say, this compound is an interesting place. Um, does this remind anybody of those movies or television shows when the protagonists come upon a hippie compound? Not unlike Easy Rider from 1969 when they come up on the hippie camp. You know, it, it did remind me of some things, but, but it's sort of like we're on this journey and, and we, we come upon this, uh, this compound and there's all this weird crap going on. So anyway, uh, we're taken away from the party for a little while. And this, this Daniel guy, the super annoying guy, is trying to keep Mari company with the humor that he's got. And he's doing this weird humor because he's got like these big ears uh, that he pulls out of his pocket and he puts the big ears on. Or he has these big eyes. Uh, like it's, the, it's all these little kind of like annoying magic tricks. Zach, you were about to say Easy Rider too. I totally like got the Blu-ray of that not long before Dennis Hopper died. And so I watched it not, you know, it was relatively recently. Um, so, yeah, this was this was amazing. But uh, this Daniel guy is trying to get Mari to relax because she's reflecting on how she keeps getting all these arguments with her daughter. And um, and we get the most shocking revelation ever that Mari is just being strong because she feels that if she's not strong, she'll fall apart. And by shocking, I mean, not shocking at all. It, it's the it's the strong mother routine. You know, if I if I break apart and if I start showing any emotion, I'm going to fall apart. And at the same time, it's so it's like 
we have a strong woman, but at the same time, we have female fragility going on at the same time. And so I'm like, okay. Um, and then she asks him, you're from Yugoslavia, right? And he says, yeah, I lost my whole family there. Wait, didn't he just say he was British in the previous episode just before this? Did not he just say he was English? All right. Anyway, we're back to the party. And uh, the, the, there's a really cool part, though. When Kite takes over as DJ, he kind of like crowds the other DJ off the stage and uh, takes over as DJ. And he plays, he gets this record of Haruo's that he plays and it's like this ambient sort of a nature stuff going on uh, nature noises uh, birds chirping and water flowing and all that kind of stuff and haro seems to have a pretty upset reaction because it is clear that this is his music that he recorded and created himself but then he's okay and i think he was embarrassed to have it to have to come out of his shell but then he finally does come out of his shell at this party and um I didn't, you know, then they flash back to Cuneo, the old man, and he's sharpening arrow blades, uh, the, the arrow, arrowheads and stuff. And I'm like, what's this guy about to do? And he's basically preparing for battle. And, uh, but then just because we've had one almost rape scene, why not another? And this man at the party, this guy, he gets Ayumu out of the party and he tries to, uh, get it on with her. She, headbutts him and knocks him down and we're briefly reminded that she has this cut on her leg there very briefly and i'll i'll point this out i know that this is just a device this whole wound is just a thematic device in order to you know make a point but the thing is while she's on this compound she's working in an infirmary You'd think that if she's working in an infirmary, you'd think that somebody there would be like, hey, there's this huge gash in your leg. Why don't we fix that? Or maybe she would be like, hey, there's like medical supplies here and maybe I should like patch this up and like use some hydrogen peroxide, God forbid. But, you know, this is it's just a device. The wound's one of those things that it's a time bomb and it's going to appear later, you know, so I just, uh, just put up with it. So she knocks this guy down. Uh, after he tries to, you know, get it on with her and then kite comes out and he's like, Oh wow, you got him. And he acts pretty uh, like girly. He's like jumping around and he's giggling. And this is one of the few indications that we get over, more overt indications, at least that, uh, that kite is actually trans. And the, the assumption that I made was that is that uh, kite is a, trans man because he he looks more like a man uh and whereas you know you know it's just if you're going to make a call between a man or a woman you're going to be like okay it's a it's a transsexual man okay um so mm, i have to ask what's the point though of this other almost rape scene it, it literally serves almost no purpose and i don't understand why it's in there and i, I think it's a little bit unnecessary um, we get a jump to the morning and Ayumu is with uh, Kite alone. Uh, they're sitting on a bench outside and she's like, you were really childish when you're high. That's unexpected. And Kite is still actually drinking uh, some, some more uh, alcohol that, that morning. So he's still like enjoying all of this. 
And she asks him why he's even still with them because he could have gotten to safety because a lot of the rich people in Japan have been able to escape by now, which is interesting. And I think that's true. I think that's a good assumption to be able to make. And so Kite says he thought it would be interesting, even, uh, even though she's making this good point about why he shouldn't even be with them anymore. Um, Dave, you're saying this, this sure is a modern movie. Yeah. We have, uh, uh, we have the, the racial jump that was made, first of all, with the composition of the family, uh, which comes up later, too. And then there's also, um, uh, what is it, um, the, the, modern, the modernity with uh, Kite being uh, a trans man. And so there's, uh, and then like with, uh, with the more lackadaisical uh, uh, approach to drugs, because the drugs have been getting into Japan more easily, it isn't. Uh, as taboo of a subject anymore you know it it's uh it's the process of japan becoming a little bit more modern uh postmodern even really would be the way to put it um yeah the 20 yeah zach you're saying the 2020 is in the title for a reason oh yeah it is um and yeah 420 jonestown is definitely an apt uh title here you haven't even begun to see that so uh, then we have a nice emotional scene uh mari is uh, cutting Ayumu's hair. And uh, at the beginning of that, of the scene, we're given a shot of Ayumu's legs and there's the gash in her uh, leg and she's sitting uh, in a chair outside and you can see the cut. And that shot is on her leg there and I timed it. It lasts four seconds long. Um, and it's like, nobody's even noticing this wound yet. Come on. But anyway, Mari tells Ayumu that there's not even time to mourn the loss of someone so precious. It's because the disaster has taken their home and everything's happening so incredibly fast. And Mari, the mother says, dad would be mad if we mourned him because he used to say, stop crying and get on with life. Quote unquote. Maybe the biggest emotional moment we see here though, is when Mari is crying and uh, Ayumu is crying and she says, and Mari says, some people don't even have a country or a family to return to. That's deep. So they resolve not to cry again about this and move, to move forward. And we have a very abrupt change in mood, which is one of the coolest things in this entire series. We see Kunio, the old man, on, his mo on the mobility scooter that the, uh, the, the compound graciously lent him. So he's on this mobility scooter. He's with his bow and arrow, and he's doing all these fancy moves going around in this uh, mobility scooter. And he has his arrow, and he just starts shooting all the guards because he's trying to get to mother because he wants to get supposedly to get to mother. And I'm like, wow, he's just killing people now. And and he and he does like there's this one part where he does this 180. As, as people are firing guns at him, the gunshots fire into the back of the, of the mobility scooter <laughs> as he's doing this 180. And then when he comes around from the 180, he gets the bow and arrow again and he shoots and kills the guy. And like, <laughs> I, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It is really hilarious. It's one of the most hilarious things in this entire series. It's so cool. And, and as someone who is disabled, I think this is fantastic to watch. Um, thank you, Science Sorrow Studios, for creating this moment. Cuneo <laughs> uh, uh, is, is on his way there into the temple, right? So then we see 
uh, the Oracle mother and she's naked and she's getting into this luxurious pool of water in order to bathe. And uh, then as he's killing the guards and then meanwhile, when she's bathing her, her husband, her you know, male companion, whatever we never, we don't really know. Uh, he uh, comes in and they begin to make love. And um, meanwhile, Cuneo has slipped past them and gets the kid. He gets the boy and says, grandpa has come for you. And I was like, what in the world is going on? Then he, he gets the boy, puts him in this, in his truck. And then he uh, escapes. He tries to escape in this pickup truck, this American pickup truck, I believe. And he's trying to make out of the compound, make it out of the compound with the boy in the passenger seat. And then the Cuneo, he experiences a morphine overdose and he crashes the truck into one of the posts that's next to the gate of the compound. And uh, the boy's safe. And, but he's perspiring like crazy and he passes out. And that's the end of the freaking episode, people. That is so weird. I, I don't even know what I've been, what I'm even watching here. And then episode six, I mean, episodes five and six, Zach, you're saying WTF. I, I know I was too. Um, so episode six is the other episode that really just throws everybody off. Uh, people, uh, a lot of comments that I saw, they were like, episodes five and six were so weird. What was going on? I don't They probably thought it was unnecessary. I think what the purpose of this was, was to show the more postmodern Japan that they're living in the, and to kind of just show us what the country's like. And I, I feel that that's what it is. I don't know. Maybe the, I don't know what else they were trying to do. I really can't imagine what else they were trying to do. At the very beginning of episode six, we see Haro um, and he's running and he's timing himself and he's like, darn, I'm so slow. And I'm like, why did they just have this? This anime never has anything in here for no reason. So what is it? That's going to happen regarding this. I don't even, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure what's going to happen. So I figured that in episode six, that this compound was just going to go down in a spectacular fashion because it's Japan sinks after all. And it definitely was going to happen in this episode. And I was right. And there's a lot that happens in this episode, but there's more action in this too. Our protagonists are eating breakfast the next morning. They don't know where Kunio is and they realize it's about to hit and we realize it's about to hit the fan because we don't know what's going to happen here. Kite. He knows that Cuneo is sick and he doesn't say anything when ghost says that the old man will just get better. So the destruction of the compound is on the same day as the 10th birthday celebration of this boy, Lord Daiichi, who's the kid that the, that the medium uses in order to make contact with the dead, blah, blah, blah. Cuneo had actually overdosed on morphine. We find out, which I, had guessed before I may have been too good at guessing the boy is okay. And Cuneo's having this big withdrawal morphine withdrawal. And he's in this jail cell that the compound has put them, put him in there because uh, you know, literally he killed like two or three people and they, the one of mother's employees, they ask it, are, are we going to kill him? And mother is like, eh, maybe later. And Cuneo did kill two people. So they are considering the death penalty, which is interesting. Um, Kite, meanwhile, is up in a sort of museum area of this temple, and he is given a big donation of money, probably like YouTube AdSense money, right? 
to the compound and it's because he wanted to be able to get a special audience with mother because you have to have a lot of money in order to be able to get in there to be able to get her to read whatever it is that you want her to. So on his way out, the manager's talking with kite and there's this crack in the walkway that they're on. And kite is like, that's a new crack, isn't it? And the manager is like, Oh, well, I guess it is. I guess they'll patch it up. And then he just continues on with the compound and meet, you know, compound tour. And meanwhile, uh, you know, kites like, uh Oh, so the next scene is rather long, but here's the deal. Onodera is, is in his hospital bed and he's communicating by blinking his eyes and tapping his thumb against the bed frame. And he's doing it in Morse code. And it takes forever for us to realize that this is what's going on. <sighs> but who else guessed that the first thing he'd say is there's an earthquake coming, big earthquake, GTFO, etc. And I figured that's what he was going to say too. And for once, Ayumu believes something that there's no evidence for. And so, uh, except who he is and what he's saying, she doesn't really necessarily believe that, but she believes that there is an earthquake that's coming. And also, this is the second time we see Ayumu in the infirmary, and she does nothing to fix the wound in her leg, proving that this is just merely a plot device. In the next scene we see a glimpse of news on Haruo's phone and it's talking about how the first group of evacuees has been chosen by uh, ID lottery. So it's kind of like the last digits in your social security number. If, it, if you know, the equivalent of the American social security number system. So the negotiations are still going as to where this first ship that's escaping Japan will even land. And so that, you know, there's diplomatic stuff going on. And very briefly, we see the prime minister of Japan shaking hands with the president of Russia. And they don't look like Abe and Putin at all. It's not meant to be that way at all. It's, you know, fiction. Um, we're in a fictional enough land still uh, there, that there are stand-ins for politicians. So Ayumu, she has turned into Paul Revere. The earthquake is coming. The earthquake is coming. Her mom uh, told her to grow up in the last episode. And it turns out she's growing up some. Go, the boy, hears Kunio in the jail cell going through his withdrawal, and Go tells Kite later on, please save him. And Kite is like, what a pain. And really, I like the Kite character more than I like any of the other characters in this whole series. Even though Kite is not the main character, uh, Kite is in all caps, by the way. That name is in all caps. Um, so the celebration is going on for the boy's birthday, and Ayumu uh, comes onto the scene and tells everyone celebrating to STFU and GTFO. A torch starts a fire nearby and it starts a fire already. And there's not even an earthquake happening yet. Kite breaks one of the uh, windows in the, uh, one of the displays at the museum and he gets a uh, bow and arrow out and he uses it because he's probably going to give it to Cuneo, right? So he goes down and, Cuneo is in full morphine withdrawal, screaming, effing blank, it hurts, it effing hurts. I really got to emphasize, emphasize, empathize there because of, uh, you know, withdrawal and all that. Kite gives him some morphine pills and these blister packs. At, and at that moment, the earthquake happens and the huge statue that's on top of this uh, temple begins to crack. And there's an interesting connection symbolically between how the earthquake is opening up cracks while a big thing to do at this compound is to 
mend cracks back together and to put things that are broken back together and to make an art out of it even. So Go finds the chef, Mr. Otani. And um, Mr. Otani is, um, all these items are thrown upon him during in this earthquake that were knocked over. And, uh, and only worse, a big piece of the statue falls on top of him and, and Mr. Otani uses his body to break the, uh, you know, the, the, the weight of it uh, in order to save Go because uh, Go is like right in front of them. And so, wow, there's all this stuff happening. And then Mr. Otani reveals that he actually used to be a sumo wrestler who got blamed, who got banned, I mean, from the sport for match fixing, which this was a recent news item in 2019-2020 with a big scandal involving match fixing of sumo wrestling matches. So here we go with the, the current events again. Um, and that is possibly one of the things that contributed to the decline in, in interest in this sport that's been around forever. Um, mother is with her other employees. She decides to abandon the compound and open the gate. And there are a lot of people waiting to get out and they all run out. Uh, at least a lot of them do. Then the employees, seemingly those in the upper echelon uh, employees, they have a free for all and they decide to steal uh, to, to try to all steal the huge amount of money and gold and everything else is that, that is in this gigantic uh, uh, safe that's there. It's like this walk-in safe, you know, bank safe kind of affair. Um, so they end up all shooting each other and uh, because they're all trying to double cross each other. And then mother gets shot, but then she and her man, they go up to the top of the temple to try to save the boy. And uh, Kunio immediately goes up to try to find the boy as soon as he's let out of his jail cell. Mother and her man get to the boy first, and something really jarring happens. He's, the boy speaks for the first time ever in his life, apparently, saying, thank you, thanks, mother. And then a piece of the ceiling of the temple falls like super fast right on top of him and instantly kills him crushed you know bashes his head in and he's dead wow and like the i think people who are watching this they they might have been just like what the? and they laugh because it's like this is so just these deaths are so amazing and, and um surprising and shocking and sudden um and so kunio the old man he realizes he couldn't save the boy in time. He wanted to save the boy because Kunio actually lost his real granddaughter in a landslide. And he wanted to believe that she was there. And so by saving the boy, he could be sort of like saving her, blah, blah, blah. And so this like this transferred kind of uh, guilt. And so he gives, he gives the Oracle Kunio gives the Oracle, the Oracle an item and she reads it. And she says, there is nothing, but that's just what, she wanted me to say to you, but also for you to quit smoking. So then Mari, uh, Haruo, Ayumo, and Go all get in Kunio's truck to escape the compound. And then they see Daniel, this annoying guy, and they're like, come with us. And he's like, no, I need to stay here. This is where I'm going to stay. And they, and as they drive off, he says in English to them, hasta la vista, baby. Kite is then carrying 
Cuneo down the stairs to leave the temple and escape the temple before it collapses. And Cuneo actually bites Kite on the shoulder and breaks free of him and says, because Kite is carrying him. And he breaks free and and, uh, Cuneo says, run. And he ends up saving the day later because for some freaking reason, as they're trying to escape the compound in the truck, these two like guards or whatever of the compound start like trying to shoot guns at them and stuff to try to stop them. Even though a bunch of people have already escaped from the compound. I'm not really sure. Maybe they just don't want them because they picked up Onodera. Maybe they were trying to make sure Onodera stayed there. I don't know. But anyway, uh, these two compound guards start shooting at them, but Cuneo with his bow and arrow, he shoots these guys with the bow and arrow and then gives go, I believe a peace sign and then a fingers crossed sign saying, you know, meaning good luck, or maybe he was actually doing the insult. Probably not. And yes, what's, what's with the Terminator two quote? I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, they figure the boy's reason for saying thank you was that he wanted to not be contacted from beyond. And so the you know, mother and her boyfriend slash man are up there. And then various other people from the compound go up to the top of the temple with them. Her followers tell her that she created a world where everyone belonged and they're going to stay there. And so like, it's like, and so then it turns into like an adventure movie where you find the lost civilization and then the lost civilization ends up being destroyed either by your own fault or by a natural disaster. So there's that moment, the statue that's on top of the temple completely collapses, killing the Oracle and her followers. And the compound is completely destroyed in an earthquake. And uh, that's the end of that. And then kite is looking at his phone as they're in the truck and he looks at the prime minister in this video saying that the volcanic activity has slowed down and that the islands will not sink. They, I imagine Onodera thinks differently because they look back that we, we see him in the back in the bed of the pickup truck and he blinks twice. And I'm guessing that means no, I'm sure that there is an ebb and flow to this disaster. And this is probably linking back to the 1973 movie because they weren't sure about when the very biggest part of the earthquake would happen. The one that actually splits the central part of the biggest island Honshu, because that's the whole thing about calling earthquakes and when they're going to happen. You don't, you know, the energy buildup may be there, but you don't know when that energy is going to actually be released. But that's the nature of of earthquakes and the difficulty of predicting them. So then we're into episode seven. Things start to get back to normal a bit. Um, we start um, where, let's see, the news is on the phone talking about the evacuations. Mari asks about airplanes and uh, Kite is like, well, there probably aren't any airplanes because there are no undamaged runways, which makes sense. They drive through a destroyed town, which is one of the, which is one of the cities that's more close to the coast. And there are these dogs that are eating some kind of carcass as they speed through and all that's left you know in these in these towns are just death because there's you know it's completely gone and they get close to the port as close as they can and then the traffic is all stopped and people have gotten out of their cars and you know it's basically turned into a parking lot on the road and it's amazing how organized this port is considering how bad the disaster was but that's you know i guess that's just japanese restraint and organization you know 
but there's a lottery system for the ID cards and the families are getting broken up in the process because the, you know, it isn't by family. It's actually just by the, uh, their, their IDs. So it's all basically random, which that certainly sucks. So then Onodera is in the truck and he types in on their phone. Uh, he texts types and says that Fuji, the Mount Fuji area is dangerous. And he predicts everything so far so well, so uh, you can assume that that's what's going to happen. They notice that there is smoke coming up from Mount Fuji right then and there. The idea is, is that they can actually see Mount Fuji from that far away because the landscape has changed that much that they can see Mount Fuji down there because that's like the highest point in eastern Japan still. It's the only part in eastern Japan that's still above water. So... Ayumu sees two people from her track team uh, and, and the coach and her husband. So they, uh, she talks with them and they're like, hey, there's a special list that you can get on, the, on this ocean liner that's escaping. Uh, you can get on there because you're a promising young person. And so that, that means, and the all-star team was included. So that means you can get on too. So, okay, there's a secret list that includes her, that includes middle school track teams. Okay. Shocking, but all right. So she has to decide if she's going to come or not because, you know, whether to desert her family or not. So Mari says, go and save yourself. And when Mari gives Ayumu a hug, Ayumu feels something around the back of her waist. And she's like, what is that? And uh, her mom says nothing. And they, uh, and that's, I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. Cause it looked like it was a wire or something. So when we do later find out what that is, Ayumu has to get in this long line to get on this ocean liner. And she pauses because of the pain from the wound in her leg, you know, the plot device, which I'm sure that, you know, that's going to go off that, that plot time bomb, that plot device is going to go off pretty soon. The coaches, uh, her, her track coach's husband says how they don't even know where the ship is going because the, the diplomats haven't even negotiated that yet. So Ayumu realizes, she looks up on her phone and figures out that what was on her mother's waist was a battery for what is called an LVAD, or a, which is a heart pump. And so it, it, it is, uh, so she had heart surgery and really it's only like a temporary sort of thing because it's like a bypass sort of thing. And so Ayumu runs back. She gives her little uh, bracelet pass that she's been given and to, to another family, to another person who wants it. And Mari, her mom says, no, you still need to go. And Ayumu says, Japan will be okay. So long as Fuji doesn't erupt. Well, you know what happens then. Instantly, Mount Fuji erupts. There's a huge eruption and a big uh, earthquake and a shockwave occurs right then, too. Uh, the shockwave hits and all these pieces of like really sharp debris come flying. And this two foot long, I'm not even kidding, two foot long shard of you know debris like goes right through Haro's shoulder and like impales him. It goes totally through him. And so we, we see him screaming and, and like blood and everything quite unpleasant. And now, th this, now that this revelation has occurred regarding her mom's heart condition, 
we know that the, the fanny pack that she's been carrying, that it has the batteries for this device in it. And so Mari has a, amazingly, Mari has a solar power pack in order to charge this thing with. And uh, I, I don't even know if that really exists in real life or not, maybe not, but that's how she's been surviving even this long. So it's, a, it's possible that Mari has already given into the fact that she's probably not going to make it through this because of her health condition. And her husband knew about it, but you know, he got blown up, but then her children weren't even told about this operation and about the device. Uh, so they didn't even know. And so it was only now that they find this out. So we find out that the direction of the story again changes and then we run into the nationalism. Now, the nationalism is really important here because it, of the way that it's set out here. And it's very interesting. I actually approve of it. And uh, you, you'll see. They come upon, they're driving down the coast because obviously this, this ocean liner thing didn't work out. So they're driving down the coast and they see in the water, in the ocean, they see this mega float. And it's this very large pontoon style boat. It's like a barge. And they, they can have a lot of stuff on it, but generally these barges have either containers, parking lots, or airport runways. And this is the part where the series, this anime, rejects the nationalism. So I first, uh, on, this, on this barge, I noticed the giant, like these super giant speakers. And then also, everybody on this float was carrying their own um, um, megaphone in order to yell at people with. And I thought, oh boy. Um, so we have the nationalism thing with all the, the megaphones and everything. So, you know, uh, mimicking real life here. Um, there are lots of flags all over it and there's lots of, uh, jingoism going on all these chants. Um, one, you know, talking about only pure Japanese, uh, will be on here. And I'm like, uh Oh, and then the, uh, then they say, um, our, you know, this is Japan and we will never sink. Takumi Zaizen is a complete fool. And Takumi Zaizen is the prime minister that they're talking about. So they're saying the prime minister is a fool. Uh, we're not going to sink. And so they got out on this barge in order to survive all of these disasters. So they shout on their megaphones that they're moving Japanese island and we will never sink and all that. Sure, Jan. With all this going on you know it's going to play out because go and ayumu are mixed race and mari is full-blooded filipino so we know this isn't going to go very well onodera types on the phone with his with his thumb and he says don't go <laughs> i would have just left it right at that and left but you have to have this this confrontation play all the way through you know in order to have the the, re the rejection of the nationalism go all the way so they reject all three, all you know, these people reject all three of them, obviously, because Koichiro was Japanese. He's not there anymore. And his children aren't 100% Japanese. They aren't approved by the nationalists. So Kite yells at them saying, what are you talking about? You are such a-holes in English. Uh, and Ayumu says, go to hell. Um, go, the boy says, he hopes that their pontoon sinks. And we already know it's going to happen anyway. Uh, and then, so they go further down and then they have this, this man who has a boat and he actually says, well, I will take you instead. So it's this captain that they don't even know on this smaller 
kind of a boat and he decides, you know, they decide to go with him. However, shortly after there, the, this big barge that all these nationalists are on it, run, the ship either runs into something or there's an accident on it. I believe they said that there's a ship that, that, that their ship ran into something, the barge ran into something. So then this barge, it leaks oil and then sets fire and explodes. And so there's all these like Japanese nationalists and they're all on fire and they're all screaming and they're all running off of this barge into the water in flames. The whole thing blows up. It's actually really satisfying. So they get aboard. So then the, the debris from the explosion though, from the barge, it, the debris punctures the boat that, that our family is on. So then they have to get into lifeboats in order to survive. And then a tidal wave finishes destroying the boat and then it's dark. And then the lifeboat comes upon this thing that they think is an Island. And it's actually just the top of a building, like the helipad part of a skyscraper. And that's actually what it is that they ran into. And that just proves how much Japan has sank. This is quite a wild ride. Like it, this 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 anime does not have the greatest reviews, but at the same time, you almost have to see it just in order to experience it, right? But it's so weird. Um, but it is it's it's a very wild ride, and it is not how the Komatsu book goes. It is not how any of these movies go either. So this last episode was, uh, or no, this episode, episode eight. That's the one you got to watch out for. That's the tough one. So Ayumu and Go are with the captain. Then it's the three of them in this lifeboat. The first death, yeah, the first death of the episode is the captain. He is leaning outside, like half his body is leaning outside this uh, lifeboat. And the Ayumu wakes up and she wakes up to his body being eaten by all of these seagulls. Like they have picked uh, they're you know, picking the bones, you know, clean. And then she's like, and she's like, Oh my God. And like, you know, and then right at that moment, a shark from the water comes out and grabs the body and pulls the body into the water and they're like, oh my God, you know, and like that, I didn't expect that to happen. Um, so there's that. And then at that point, I think it's actually some of the best stuff in the entire anime series is the part when Ayumu and Go, and it's just the two of them, and they're in the lifeboat. And I start thinking about Life of Pi, maybe, or some of these other movies and shows that have had someone in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean they have to survive and it's uh you know they're isolated and it's, it's that whole that whole trope and but it's actually done pretty well it actually has some of the best dialogue of the whole thing because it's it's her and her brother and they're they're they get a chance to kind of reflect on things and talk about things um and so that that is a nice respite from all the death that is in this. 
they reminisce about some of the comforts of life. They reminisce about Starbucks and they reminisce about Amazon deliveries. And, the, and he was like, I ordered a game and it was going to be delivered by Amazon. And I guess that's not going to happen anymore. And so this discussion is something that y- you can actually relate to a lot more than a lot of the other stuff that happens in this. Not to get too sad, but millions of Americans and others have assuredly had conversations like this, considering the coronavirus outbreak, you know, hey, I remember when we used to be able to blank, you know, fill in the fill in the blank, right? Plenty of things. So this episode, uh, it reminded me a lot of Life of Pi, and we get uh, this sad part of it, you know, for a ch- we get a sad part for a change when Koichiro, the father, appears in Ayumu's dream and actually reunites with them. And then she wakes up and he's gone. But we're then at that point, we're again reminded of the cut on Ayumu's leg. And, and this was actually the point where the first time through when I watched this, this was actually the point where I realized that she had a job in an actual infirmary. And I was like, wait a minute, man, isn't that kind of, it's a good thing. This is an anime, you know, and it doesn't matter, but you'd think that she'd, be like, hey, let's get this festering wound taken care of because this wound, you know, every time you see it, it keeps looking worse and worse. And I'm not going to play the pothole police, but whatever. The, then there's a moment where a flying fish like flies into this, uh, into the the uh, lifeboat raft that they're on because it's kind of like this tent, basically. And the tent has like this, this uh, tent material, you know, bottom as well. So it's like this life raft slash tent sort of a thing but the the moment uh, with the flying fish that like they try to catch the fish in order to eat it and the the flying fish flies out but then there's this bird that lands on top and it looks like a pelican sort of thing that lands on top or maybe like a heron and it lands on top of the the tent and or the boat and then they they go up and they grab the bird and they grab the bird down in there and they're trying to wrestle with it. And then the bird spits out like three fish that it had eaten. And then they use the fish's beak in order to scale, in order to descale the fish so that they can eat the fish. And, uh, and that's a realistic touch because the water that they collect from the fish and the oil that they collect, that's actually nourishing. Uh, so it's now it's sort of like a survivalism movie. Um, there's a water collection bag that came along with this lifeboat tent sort of thing. And it's like this, uh, it's like this plastic uh, bag thing that it sort of looks like one of those um, IV bags that you have like saline solutions stored in. And they're, uh, they're able to get a lot of uh, water because it rained. But the thing is, there's a whole bunch of volcanic ash that was mixed in with this. And so as a result, uh, they have to throw the water out because they can't drink uh, volcanic ash because of, uh, I believe it's acidity, sodium, calcium, fluoride, and, uh, and stuff like that. Contaminants, uh, stuff that you definitely should not drink. They, there's a little bit of atmospheric moment. This uh, pretty relatively large ship goes past them and, the, it's it's a ship of death, literally. It's filled with seagulls and dead bodies, and the bodies are all being picked apart. And uh, and they can smell the boat actually before the, the, they can even see it. 
So it was like this stench of death and all this. Which I, I, I have no problem with any of this. I think it's actually pretty cool. But they, they figure that Onodera, there's a one point before this where Onodera gave them coordinates uh, when he typed it out on the phone. And they're trying to figure out what these coordinates were for. And after some final small talk centering around Mari's uh, story, but eventually Mari and Haro appear in a boat and rescue them because they had taken the other lifeboat. So they get to the coordinates and they figure out that that's probably the place that he, they, he wanted them to go. And uh, Onodera is still with them. So it's the, they are still, so it's, so it's Mari, Haro, Onodera, Go, and Ayumu. And so then uh, the battery pack for Mari's heart device signals that the battery's dying. And without that battery power, we know that she's going to die. The motorboat that they're on, they, they eventually come to a motorboat and it has gas and works and everything. But the thing is the, uh, uh, the anchor of that boat is uh, down and it's stuck on something like way below in the water in the ocean there. So then in order to save them, Mari says that with her swimming expertise, she's going to do it. So she dives down, frees the rope. And as she's trying to swim back up to the boat, she drowns and they try to get her, they get her out of the water and they spend about a minute like a full, like literal minute trying and trying to revive her, you know, pushing her heart down and trying to uh, uh, do mouth to mouth resuscitation, all that stuff. It's a, this probably one of the saddest moments in this anime, really uh, the revelation of her heart problems and, and the surgery really gave us a lot of clues that something like this was going to happen. This reminded me of um, like <laughs> fellowship of the ring you know, when Frodo uh, is down in the water and Sam goes and pulls him up and all that, except there's death this time. And then the episode ends and that's the end of episode eight. And holy crap, this is so sad. Um, this is really just taking us so many directions and I can't believe it. Um, episode nine for this episode, we're going to have an in-depth examination of one of the most amazing things that happens in this entire series, and that is the Japanese rap battle. You heard me. So, they were going to analyze that. That's where that's what happens in this episode. It's like half of this episode is that. So, the beginning of the episode has the immediate aftermath of the death of Mari, and uh, Haruo is piloting the speedboat. And he takes them to the coordinates that they're supposed to go to, or at least towards. Then what happens is Kite and Onodera show up in a small amphibious Japanese military vehicle. Where they got it, I don't know. But they end up rescuing them. And then Kite notices that Ayumu is wearing her mother's necklace. And then he's like, what happened? And Ayuma says she sacrificed herself. Uh, there's an underwater volcanic eruption sort of thing near them that rains volcanic matter all around. 
and it's proving that they likely would have been killed if they hadn't been picked up by kite and gotten into this you know metal uh, vehicle that protects them better. So they go to the coordinates that Onodera tells them to go to, and they come upon this island, and it has a lighthouse on it and uh, some hot springs. Oh, no, 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 that's not the island they're supposed to go to. They come to this island first. So we are again reminded of the festering wound in Ayumu's leg, the plot device, which she somehow didn't attend to. And then she says hot springs are good for wounds, right? And Kite is like, well, maybe. So then we're led into the rap battle. Ayumu tells Go, isn't Japan great? I don't know why, I don't know what on earth makes her say this, but she says that. They don't have hot springs in Estonia, do they? And then Go uh, and Kite say, actually, yes, uh, Estonia does have hot springs. And then Ayumu's like, well, they don't have cherry blossoms in Estonia, right? And Go and Kite are like, well, it's all underwater now anyway, so what does it matter? And Go says, I can't stand this country. And he continues to rigidly stay in the same position on something, even though he's less than 10 years old. He's completely set on this position. His reasoning now, though, is founded in a, in a good point because he just had to go through all of this. And if he wasn't born in Japan, then he wouldn't have to have gone through all this. So I guess that's the point. At eight minutes and 15 seconds into the episode, the rap battle begins. And Kite says, okay, let's get started. All of us Japanese here, we're all on the same ship. We're all survivors. Don't you get it? Don't you keep it inside? Let it all out. What's deep inside your heart? Go, the kid, says, I can't rap. And Kite says, can't isn't allowed here. And meanwhile, the, the, there's a beat that's playing on Kite's phone that's like a, a, like a, a rap instrumental. I, I can't believe this. But we, uh, Kite says, we don't have a road or a firm ground or time. Let your frustrations out, man. Go says, people in this country are so subdued. They're all good-natured and timid. They're worried about appearances. They're introverted, insular, and do things in groups. They treat you like a freak if you're different, so damn picky, and hammering down the nail that sticks out. It's totally different than foreign countries. I'm glad this country is sinking, but I won't be taken with it. Okay. Kite then says, hey there, Japanese dude. He's dissing Japan, man. Come on, give him what he's for. Let's hear your answer. Haro, let's go. So Haro is like, what? Well, and then Haro starts rapping. He says, hey, you there, smart Alec. And I actually wrote this all down. Quit talking big. You go complaining that you hate Japan. That, negati that negativity, though, is so totally Japanese. There's little difference between individuality and selfishness. If you assert yourself too much, life just becomes painful. And what's wrong with being good-natured? Getting your wallet back when you lose it is awesome. We don't hurt others when we worry about appearances. That consideration shows our kindness. That's what I like. I admit we can be picky about details. That's why we're such good service, thoughtfulness, and accuracy. You complain we're too serious? That's our special talent. Everyone in the world trusts made in Japan. You can, you can connect to the world just through the internet. Quit talking big just because you think you know it all now. If you hate it that much, then get the hell out. If you regret it someday, what do I care? Well, 
the ending of that certainly is some of the most nationalist stuff there is. It's just like the Americans when they say, uh, love it or leave it, right? Interesting. I don't know if I approve of that, but you see, like we're, we're hearing all these different viewpoints, right? And that's, I think that's what the point is here. But I never thought that the Japan sink story would be turned into a rap battle about what it is to be Japanese. You have to really see this to believe it. I, I really couldn't believe it. Kite says, yes, you can do it. I knew you could. Okay, lady, now it's your turn. Don't sit silent. Now's the time to talk. And Ayumu gives the third viewpoint. And she says, I'm sick of your whining. Foreign countries in Japan. What the heck is the point of comparing countries? Hey, every place has its good points and its bad points too. There are good people and bad people and people that are neither. There is crime everywhere. Miracles can happen anywhere. I'm sick of everyone's opinion. I'll decide for myself. There were never any lines on the globe before, so why now? It's nonsense to judge what people from a country are like. I've finally realized this, and at a time like this, it's way more important who we're with than who we are. If I can be with the people with me now, then I can survive. Then this is my land, this is Earth. So this is a great funny moment when Kite offers... There's also a funny moment when Kite offers Onodera the opportunity to rap, which, you know, he can't speak. And uh, so instead the subtitle, they show him and then the subtitle reads, I'll punch the people who mocked me. <laughs> I thought that was actually one of the coolest things in this series was, was whoever thought of writing that. That was pretty funny. So because this is Kaiju vision, I'm going to actually take apart what this rap battle actually means. It's not difficult, but I'll give you my quick impression. They're talking about what it means to be Japanese, and that's connected to Komatsu's reason for writing Japan Sinks in the first place. You know, what will happen to the Japanese people? That's what is really what this whole story is about in the first place. Go believes in Japanese exceptionalism, right? That there are a lot of unique qualities that, are, that Japanese people generally have good-natured timidity, introversion, exclusivity, but he cites negative qualities. And this isn't an unusual critique that would come from a lot of people, but he disagrees with those characteristics of his nationality, so he's glad to see them gone due to the country sinking. But it's also self-criticism. It's introspective and vulnerable on a national scale. He seems to have a globalist opinion, wishing that Japan would be just like everywhere else, or at least more open, less timid, and more carefree. So that's the first one. Haruo's opinion is extremely different from Go's, but it is similar in that Haruo believes in Japanese exceptionalism, also just like Go does, but he uh, holds on to the positive things and highlights the positive things about Japanese exceptionalism. He says being negative and filled with complaints is itself a Japanese attribute. He frames individuality as selfish, so he thinks that the high level of trust in Japanese society is a good thing. I'd recommend reading a book called Trust, which is uh, written by a man named Francis Fukuyama, if you want to explore more about the uniqueness of Japan with regards to civil society. So to that end, he says that attention to detail kindness, trustworthiness, 
and being good-natured by far outweigh the negatives that go listed. The end of what Haro says is more nationalist in tone, unmistakably, where he says that the world trusts made in Japan, and if you don't like it, leave it. My country right or wrong, right? Finally, what Ayamu says, what Ayumu says is the third type of opinion. She rejects Japanese exceptionalism as opposed to what the other two do. And she isn't concerned with the details. She's more worldly like Go is, but in a different way. She's not particularly down on Japan like Go is and not positive like Haruo is. She says there are good and bad people everywhere, so don't bother comparing. It's an idealistic position, but in a way, all three of these positions are idealistic because they're talking in, uh, in ways that are uh, about abstract national uh, sort of things, patriotic uh, and, and nationalistic things. She says that there shouldn't be lines on the map. And I imagine that would be a good opinion to have right now because the country that, you know, your country just disappeared. I suppose you should start preaching that. Um, this is an expression of how Japan is part of a global community. And it's also in line with the Olympic spirit as well, which, uh, you know, 2020 and all. I find these three different rounds of the rap battle interesting and entertaining because it's a very zany way to get across important things in the story without having this discussion. And it's just, it's just so weird though. But at the same time, uh, this anime studio actually does this kind of stuff pretty often. The, the Japanese rap, the, uh, the other kinds of odd things that happen in this, they are actually uh, characteristic of this anime studio. Uh, Zach, you said, you don't like Japan, just get out. Isn't that the objective? <laughs> yeah, they just did get out. So I guess that's a good point to make. And, and just like with just like with Ayamu saying, you know, uh, what, what do lines on borders matter? Well, if you just got your country destroyed, then you're going to have to be a refugee somewhere. So you definitely should probably be saying, oh, what do lines matter? We're all people, right? Okay. Mm. Getting back to the plot, the coordinates that Onodera gave them are the data, are the location of the data archives of Dr. Tadakoro, who we never see a Dr. Tadakoro except at the very end in the form of a statue, um, which is a little bit of a letdown, but mm, uh, this location is on an island that is in a cave and it's supposedly more resilient to natural disasters. So maybe the data that's there will point to information about how to save Japan somehow. And when they first say that, I was like, what do you even mean? The new data that's collected is in a micro SD card inside a tooth filling or a tooth inside Onodera's mouth. Right. That's a new one. So to finish getting the data downloaded, uh, what happens is uh, Kite goes into this facility and he starts uh, downloading all this data onto this drive. Right. But then an earthquake happens and water starts filling up the room. And, Kite says, this is like Mission Impossible. What would Tom Cruise do? He gets the drive with the data on it and puts it in a waterproof container and gets out of there with Onodera underwater with only one oxygen tank and no masks. Onodera didn't breathe at all underwater during the escape, even though he was given the opportunity to. 
which is uh, it gives us yet another time that we have to watch everybody trying to revive a character that has supposedly drowned. So they're, you know, pumping his heart and they're, uh, you know, doing all this stuff to try to save his life. And he ends up actually uh, living, which is good. For the final big scene in this episode, the waves have gotten much more extreme with the latest earthquake and they run to higher ground to the island. Kate, uh, Kite says, what is this? Um you know, die hard because they're just these giant waves trying to wash them away. And then the, the, the waterproof case with the drive in it is knocked out of his hand and it goes into the water and it gets kind of stuck in this uh, destroyed, like concrete foundation sort of thing. So it's like a little, you know, culvert in order to, you know, that this thing gets caught in. And I thought, Oh boy, what's going to happen next? And well, Haruo decides to sacrifice himself in order to get the drive back. They count the number of seconds between the huge waves and Haruo bravely volunteers for the job of running out and retrieving the case. He psychs himself up, but I think we know what's going to happen. The music and the sound during this run out and him retrieving it is actually extremely good. The music goes with what's going on in the screen for a change, and it's, uh, it has a lot of momentum. And he gets the case, and he throws the case to them. But as, right as that happens, a huge, huge wave takes him away, and, he's, and, he's, and he disappears. And Kite is extremely upset at Haruo's uh, supposed death. And then at the very... Uh, end of the episode this upbeat music starts playing for the credits i kid you not upbeat music and that totally dissolves the mood and it keeps us from feeling down in the dumps you know but it's like it's really upbeat music i don't see why they even did that i don't know but at this point the music placement is getting on my nerves a lot more um it seems about once per episode where I'm like, okay, music, we hear you, you are loud, I would like you to turn it down or shut it off completely because you're destroying the moment. It's not that the music is bad, it's just that the choices made about where to put this music and when, they wouldn't be my choices. But now, we're just down to a few characters left. We have Onodera, Ayamu, and Go. So, I'm hoping, well, at least maybe all you know, the rest of these three characters uh, will get there and go through this. Um, Zach, you're talking about Devil Man Crybaby. Yes, that is the same uh, director that did this, and it is the uh, same studio. And yeah, the Devil Man Crybaby, I've heard, I have not seen it, but it has wrapping for dramatic purposes, like you're saying. Yep. Um, yes, it is the same studio that made that. Uh, Science Saru Studios. So, we're at the last chapter, everybody. Kite and the other survivors are sad about Haruo's demise. Ayumu has developed what looks like gangrene on her leg by this point and is limping, visibly limping, even though still nobody notices the plot device. They're on an island, basically an island above water. It's, it's, it's not even that. It's like a few buildings, like the tops of some buildings. 
And it turns out that the data that they retrieved, the Haruo saved, uh, it actually says what parts of Japan will come back first. And I'm like, what do you mean? I thought it just sank. But actually, it turns out that, uh, you know, the Japan will be coming back. So they, they build a raft, makeshift raft, and they start for the closest place on the map that will supposedly come back first. And they sit there in the water and there's nothing, at least at first glance. And then Kite, this is bizarre, but Kite finds a large uh, balloon that's floating on the water and he proceeds to fill it up with air from one of the like oxygen tanks that they have, which I thought you were supposed to be using helium, but never mind. They, he says he then fills up this balloon and then uh, connects it to like this sort of uh, flat surface. And then that's connected to this, uh, 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 you know, not hot air balloon. And then he gets on the balloon and he's like, bye and leaves. And Iomu and Go are like, wow, did he just like, he just ditched us pretty much. And this turn in the story is actually pretty baffling uh, for a second only. But then they realize, well, he probably found the balloon not by accident and it wasn't luck. And so then Iomu, he, uh, Kite left his phone there and Iomu and Go find the phone and they realize that he's doing something. And because uh, they see a locate like location data occurring. And then we see some harrowing moments in the cold wind because the uh, kite is up in the cold wind, like super gusty wind risking his life. And this is uh, this is basically our YouTuber getting redemption moment. Right. Um, the balloon generated power. And then suddenly there's Internet and they're able to send out a distress signal. Don't ask me how. So then he tells them how lucky they are to have, uh, anyway, uh, never mind. A rescue helicopter arrives very quickly and tells them how lucky they are to have survived and they get rescued. And then they figure that Kite was not just relying on luck when he got the balloon. Of course, at this time, Ayamu is overcome by the infection in her leg and collapses. And then we find ourselves at a hospital and it looks like they're in Russia because there's Russian news on the television. And we get a satellite image of Japan of, uh, and, and like a, it's like a zoom out area of East Asia. So we see that Japan is completely submerged except for Mount Fuji, which is still erupting. And that's the only part of Japan that's above ground. It's erupting. It doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. And also southeastern part of South South Korea is also um, submerged because of, uh, you know, what earthquakes, tsunami, etc. So Ayamu is told that there's a bone infection and that her leg will have to be amputated. So if you are listening to this or watching this and you're a track athlete and your leg gets cut really bad, you should get it checked out and get it taken care of. Don't let it go for so long because you're going to end up having to have your leg chopped off. So the next part uh, was just too much. In my opinion, Ayamu is recovering from the operation on her leg and she gets this birthday message. It's this video from kite and it has her mother 
on it. And she's saying happy birthday and all this to Ayamu. And it looks like this cursed Snapchat video because there's these, uh, d- like a dog face that's on one of them. And like, all you know, it's that thing. And so, and then Haruo is there in this video too. And he's saying, oh, you know, happy birthday and all this. Because it's her 15th birthday on that day. And this is literal torture for her. You know, she's seeing her mother and all these other people who have been just killed in all these horrifying ways. And then she's just bursting out crying. Like, it's so just awful. And, and I don't know if this was really even, I don't know if this part was really necessary. It was a bit much. Um, later, uh, Ayamu and Go are apparently not in Russia anymore. And they're looking through all the family photos and pictures that Mari took over all the years. The, they say that the account password was on the ring that she gave to Ayamu before she sacrificed herself. And this is also pretty sad, but at least it's hopeful about moving forward. We see videos that had the audio played, like the, the, uh, the flashback audio. We see the videos now that this flashback audio came from. And... Uh, then we see, uh, then we're flash forwarded. We're flash forwarded to eight years later after the sinking of Japan. So Go has become a swimmer. And then at the part, then we see there's a part where the Olympics are going on and we see the Japanese Olympic athletes doing the, uh, you know, the, coming on because it's the parade of nations. And so it's a very poignant moment because, you know, Japan doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, you know, also with the 2020 Olympics being postponed until next year because all this going on right now, it's also a poignant moment for people who are watching. Uh, and it's also, you know, poignant because, uh, you know, I don't think they knew that this was going to happen when they created this anime. I think what happened was is that maybe in the middle of creating this anime, somewhere during the production process, the coronavirus stuff happened and then that just threw everything out of whack. And that might be some of the explanation for why the, uh, the, the, um, it might be some of the explanation for uh, what was I going to say for why uh, what was I saying darn it uh, for why the animation had problems because some of the animation has been complained about and I think maybe it's because the coronavirus threw all this off and uh, they weren't able to finish stuff or it was just everything was thrown up in the air. So that's, uh, that's where that came from. Uh, Godslayer Heavy Hand is saying, yeah, gangrene is still a pain in the ass in 2020. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, the, the plot device of the leg uh, cut finally uh, comes to fruition, finally in episode 10. Um, but anyway, the Japanese built a new island, like a very small one, two years after uh, the sinking of Japan took place where the old Tokyo stood. So there are new buildings and a new Tokyo tower and it's, it's weird, but it's kind of set up with the central Island and there are a bunch of like mini islands, but not islands that are connected to it. So it's like sort of barge islands or whatever. It's very interesting. Uh, The Japanese government collected as many images and videos of old Japan and put them all together on some like mega website. Uh, and then uh, and that is so people can remember the memory of Japan so that the memory of Japan can continue. 
And this reminded me of the 1973 movie where we saw all these images and uh, flashing images and uh, video of uh, what Japan looked like before all this happened. So we see the video, then we see a video of Kunio, the old man and his wife, where he talks about his shop opening and we see his granddaughter finally. And we find out from a narration by Ayomu that uh, Japan will rise again in 100 years, which is a direction I did not think this story would go, that Japan actually comes back. We also learn that the U.S. and Japan's neighbors held a conference and that at that conference they decide to preserve Japan's territory. Well, now we know it's fiction. I don't know how realistic that that is, but it's nice to see some sort of optimism in the story at the end. By the new Tokyo Tower, there's this big, big-ass statue of Professor Tadokoro. And it looks really weird because he's wearing this uh, trench coat. It's like this matrixy kind of trench coat. And it's a little odd um, that, that the statue shows that. And it's also odd because people referred to him as a madman this whole time. But I guess, you know, because everything that he said was going to happen happened, he's redeemed too. Um, anyway. Then Go takes part in a gaming championship at the Olympics uh, for the esports team. Um, and Go has dual citizenship with Estonia. And it's kind of implied that the Japanese. Uh, who survived that they got to pick another country in order to have dual citizenship in. Then we see Onodera in this special chair that he has because he's so disabled and he can use technology and like type things with his one hand. Um, and so this was a good ending for him, I guess as good as possible. And we see Ayumu with a lower extremity prosthesis that one of those metal things that kind of looks like a, um, kind of a bow to it. And um, she's running in a uh, long jump. And then at the ending, uh, the, she does the long jump. And then when she, she slides into the sand and then the sand goes all into the camera, you know, and then it, it dissolves, you know, into nothing. And then that's the, that's the end. But, there are a few things that I want to discuss regarding this that I don't understand. And that's what's probably maybe the most interesting thing about what I'm going to be saying in this video is, are the things that I either don't understand or I find inter particularly interesting. So um, hopefully somebody else can explain this to me later, but Kite is looking younger. There's a thing in episode 10. Kite is looking younger and um, she is flying a kite in the air. And it looks like a flashback to when she was younger. And she's wearing a skirt and then Kite takes off the skirt to reveal just underwear, normal underwear. And Kite seems happier. And I was like, okay, so that means that, yes, Kite is a transsexual man because the rejection of the skirt means potentially a rejection of f femaleness, whatever, right? 
And I was like, okay, that makes sense because she's a trans man or he is a trans man now. So that it makes sense that before that, you know, okay. So then we're flashed forward to kite looking different with still longer hair. And she's at Mount Fuji and talking about the flowers and just, she looks like, it looks like a woman still. Right. And I was like, okay, we don't know what time this video was done. We don't know where in the timeline this was. Okay, sure. It still points to the fact that that kite is a trans man in the present. Um, and so then one of the, and then there's a, uh, another one where there's another scene that it flash forwards to the present and Ayumu is in the present day and she sees her phone and there's an alert that comes up that says kite is streaming now. And then Ayumu says in English, she looks well. And I was like, wait, what? What do you mean she looks well? I don't understand now. Because everything we've seen up to now points towards the idea that she's a trans man or he's a trans man. And I was, I was so why now is Ayumu saying she looks well? Is she misgendering him? And I was like, hmm. But then also in the present, we see Onodera watching a video of Kite and Kite looks the same as in, you know, as we've seen throughout the whole series. And I was like, wait a minute, he still looks the same. So why is Ayumu referring to him as she when she says she looks well? So I don't. This isn't difficult. It's not supposed to be difficult, but I don't understand the English phrase of her saying she looks well. Um, hmm. Anyway, maybe somebody can help me out with this because th this is still a very new series. I haven't, you know, looked further into this. I don't think anybody's written an article about the, this aspect of the movie or this aspect of the series. So I don't exactly know what's going on with that but i'm what i'm doing here though is i'm trying to clumsily point out a seeming discrepancy because of because everything points to kite being a trans man and except when ayumu says she looks well so i don't know why she says she looks well because i think everybody so far has been led to believe that kite is a trans man oh, oh well you know what i mean but anyway that i was just kind of thrown i was just kind of thrown for it though at the end when she said that i was like wait a minute i thought i had i thought i understood everything up to now um in some of the along with some of the images in uh when they show us all the images of what japan used to be like one of the images, if you look closely, it's at 22 minutes and 27 seconds in. There is a snapshot uh, that shows a gay wedding where there are two older Japanese men 
kissing each other at what is clearly a wedding ceremony. So this is, uh, this series is in fact, um, you, you know, uh, like possibly thinking, you know, forward or whatever it is, you know, to a period in which gay marriage is legal in Japan, which is, uh, it still currently is not right now as I'm doing this uh, video. So like it, uh, and so it's, it's like, it's going forward eight years and then it's like backdating, you know, gay marriage being made legal. Um, but I, I saw that, I think the second time that I watched this whole series through, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. What was that? And so that was, that was interesting too. Um, but this is all very, uh, very interesting stuff. This, this, this series goes in, so many directions that I never thought it would, and it goes so many places that I never thought we'd be. Um, with regards to YouTubers, let's talk about YouTubers some more. Um, we could talk about gamers too. Uh, that sort of uh, dovetails with this, right? But um, clearly, Go is a, uh, a gamer, and uh, he actually has two dream sequences in which. Uh, he is inside a video game and they're like two, they're two very short little dream sequences and they mostly relate to um, what's been going on just most recently in his life that had just happened. Um, so there's that, but there, but let's go into YouTubers. When kites video appears on the phone in the first episode, showing the video of Okinawa sinking, Ayumu immediately takes the opinion that it's a YouTuber. So it's probably false. And the fact that he's a very popular YouTuber does not help uh, the case that he's uh, it, it doesn't hurt the case that he's probably false. And so like, it's those videos on YouTube that are like totally fake stuff. And there's like 50 million or a hundred million views or whatever. And it's fake. Um, undoubtedly this conflict and this part of the storyline, I believe, is related to the incredibly narcissistic and disrespectful adventures of Logan Paul when he went to Japan in 2018. I certainly don't even want to waste my breath talking about him or Jake, but because his behavior was so anger-inducing and upsetting to the Japanese, it likely did taint their impression of popular YouTubers. So this story serves as redemption for popular YouTubers and their garbage reprobate behavior that they engage in. Um, unfortunately, this story is instantly dated as a lot happened on this platform since the anime was completed. I don't have, to, do I really have to talk about YouTubers anymore? Um, but anyway, there's, there's a connection. And also there's a connection that kite sort of looks like PewDiePie. So there is that. And then that goes back to uh, gamers as well. Um, but that is, that is very interesting, but I think there is a matter of redemption of YouTubers because Kite decides to stay with them at the, at the end of that one episode, because I believe Ayumu is, you know, so, you know, pretty, you know, pretty much mean to him because he's a YouTuber and she doesn't trust him and she assigns all these bad motives to him and all this other stuff. You know, she assigns all these bad motives and she makes him out to be this horrible person 
not because she knows him, but because he's a popular YouTuber. So then Kite decides to stay with them and be their guide and literally save their asses uh, in order to what? In order to like prove Ayumu wrong that about YouTubers. So that I think that's what the connection is. That's also really interesting. I never thought that this would go there either, but I noticed in the first episode that like they talked about YouTubers like twice. And I thought, okay, this has got to be, this has got to be in play somewhere in the, in the plot. Cause this, this anime doesn't do anything that isn't taken care of later on. It does, it does make sure to go back and address all of the things that it, that it lays all these little uh, crumbs for us, you know? And I think that's uh, one thing that's pretty cool about this anime, but as far as complaints, I have heard complaints about the animation. Like I said, it's kind of problematic. It's there, there are points where it's lacking. uh, There's quite a bit of lack in detail. Um, And some of it looks quite frankly, unfinished. And I want to give some leeway with the possibility that the coronavirus just effed up the production process of this entire thing. And they might've just been fighting to try to get this released at this time. Anyway, as I said, this is Masaki Yuasa who uh, directed and does a lot of production at science Saru studio. But the thing is supposedly Yuasa did not have a lot to do with this production in particular. He did not have a lot to do with it. And so either, and like he, like he announced his departure or something. He announced he was taking a break. And like I said, science Saru, they, they do quirky offbeat productions. They do Japanese rap. They have characters with white hair in them. You know, like there's a, it's a thing at this anime studio this anime studio is also known uh, particularly for being, uh, I, I think it's just the only one anime studio in all of Japan that has a, uh, a woman who is uh, in charge of the studio. That's, she's the only anime studio head that is, uh, that is a woman. Um, going back to the characters, Koichiro is a survivalist. Or a, or a not a survivalist, but a very good at surviving. You know, he's very handy, and it was that 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 kind of tipped me off that yeah, he's probably going to get killed. Um, and he's also kind of hard to relate to because he's just such a we don't get to see much of his character fleshed out at all. I think the mom Mari is actually a pretty good character in general. Uh, she's good. She has good personality. Um, I think some, some people commented like she smiles quite a bit during this. And, and so people were like, why is she so like happy and like taking pictures and all she's like doing group pictures and stuff during this too. And like, I know Americans would not be doing this. He's probably not. Um, but I like the Mari character quite a bit. Um, I get her personality She's she has a simple personality and I'll I'll give it that. Um, let's talk about Daniel a little bit. Uh, I was incredibly annoyed and uh, filled with cringe at this character. 
Uh, and it was all like, I think there was some comment I saw where somebody was like, why didn't we get to see him die? Like a really horrible death. <laughs> but, uh, and then also the, the Onodera character, I sort of wonder why, why Onodera in this, what's happening with him? Why is he at this compound? What's he doing there? How did he get there? Why does he have a neck brace? Um, you know, where did he sustain this injury? But mostly, why is he at this compound even to begin with? I didn't quite understand that, but uh, oh well. Um, but the like the the death and the the nihilism and the horrible luck and the the Koichiro exploding and mom drowning and all this other stuff. I really wasn't all that bothered by it. it. I, it was something that I actually expected to possibly happen. And I also didn't really have much of a problem with it. I'm able to handle nihilism and death and stuff pretty well in movies and series. And so I wasn't really all that upset about that. Um, as long as it didn't have anything to do with the damn virus, I really don't care, but it's, it's good. I, th I think it's good in its own way. It's, it's, I think it's good to be able to, I think you should try to watch this if you can, just because of how bizarre this is, especially the middle of this. Like every, a lot of people comment, this is really bizarre in the middle. It's really uh, funny. There, there are some moments where you might unintentionally laugh. There are some moments where you, you might uh, cry even uh, depending on how much you're able to get into the characters. Uh, it's, it's so weird it's a very weird anime and i definitely did not expect the 90 of this stuff to happen my only misgiving is that i wish i could have seen more of japan sinking and see more of that see more buildings getting destroyed or on fire or what have you you know any of that stuff i wish we could have seen that more but at the same time i'm not going to be too picky and especially because of the coronavirus, they might have had to cut all kinds of stuff that they might have planned on putting in. I don't know. I want to see a documentary about this at some point. So, yeah, that is Japan Sinks 2020. Very interesting. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching this. And I hope that uh, I want definitely... Uh, let me know in the comments about what you thought of this because uh, it is, it's interesting. It's in places it's fun. And uh, I wanted, I wish they would release a version of this that just has no music whatsoever. So we just take in the feeling a little bit more as opposed to having uh, music. That's a little too upbeat. I think the, the actually the music got on my nerves a little bit more than I thought it would even, but it is what it is. And I, I'm glad that this franchise ish has been kept alive and that uh, we still get a lot of the feelings that we do from the original submersion of Japan. Uh, if you haven't seen the submersion of Japan episode that Kaiju vision did that I did at Kaiju vision, it is incredibly good. Uh, John LeMay uh, is uh, he has a guest segment on that episode too. And the related topic that I talk about is the great uh, Kanto earthquake of 1923. So there's just so much cool stuff in that episode. It's one of the best episodes that I ever did on this show. 
It's absolutely fabulous. Uh, I love the submersion of Japan. I've read the book. If you haven't read the book, Japan Sinks by Komatsu, uh, the, there's an English translation of it. It's really good. Uh, great stuff to look at. Uh, I love disaster movies. I love disaster fiction. And uh, it's a great part of tokusatsu that is unfortunately overlooked by some because there are a lot of people who just look at Godzilla and Godzilla only or just look at kaiju only. And there's so much more to uh, tokusatsu than just kaiju and then and and sci-fi. There's a lot more than that. And the disaster fiction and disaster sci-fi stuff is really cool. I really love it. Uh, I particularly like... Um, Disaster movies from the 1970s, in particular from America. A lot of the disaster movies from the 70s are not only just fun to look at for the effects, but they're entertaining to watch. There's, there's for the good and bad aspects of both. Uh, they're great to watch. Uh, particularly, I would recommend watching Earthquake or any other ones uh, or any other of Irwin Allen's. Uh, special effects masterpieces he did that man knew how to do disaster movies uh he may have been a uh, difficult man to work with but he uh he knew how to make some pretty cool stuff happen on the screen whether it's burning buildings or collapsing buildings or uh swarms of bees killing people and causing nuclear meltdowns and nuclear plants um it's all there. Irwin Allen uh, has done some great stuff. And uh, I, I feel like disaster movies are really in their heyday in the 70s. And it seems like no matter what you can throw on the screen now, it seems like disaster movies aren't really the same. And Irwin uh, Allen's just some awesome stuff. But anyway, this, is, uh, this has been a fun time uh, running this through with you. And it's uh, been a fun time having you uh having you here to enjoy this with me it's been a fun experience i took way more notes than i thought i would but i really reflected on this big time and so uh thanks everybody for watching and uh i will see you next time bye bye